conversations. <laughs> Good day, everybody. This is Davor here from Med Conversations, and I'm joined by the lovely Rahul. How are you, Rahul? Hello, everybody. We missed you just as much as I'm sure you missed us. Um, so my plan to steadily turn Med Conversations into Neuro Conversations uh, takes another step forward. Today, we're talking about functional neurology, which uh, is very fascinating, isn't it, Rahul? So fascinating. That's my brainwash <laughs> voice. He's slowly using his knowledge of the brain to convert me into a neurology acolyte. That's right. Um, so I reckon a lot of a lot of medical students would never have heard of that term. They wouldn't know what functional means, and they probably would have heard of neurology. But put those two words together, and what the hell is that? Uh, you got yourself we'll, a bamboozled we'll, medical student. Exactly. That's what I like to do. Um, it's amazing, yeah, how little recognition of it given it's probably the number one neurological presentation overall. But, highest, so what rated, are we gonna... highest rated is what he means by number one. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today, Rahul? Take us through. Uh, we're going to start off. Posts. Yeah, let me nail these into the ground. We're going to start off with the history of the term functional neurology. That'll be half an hour, the first half an hour. And then the pathophysiology of the condition. How do you actually make the diagnosis of a functional neurological disorder and then some rambling about whether or not they're quote unquote making it up and whether or not any of us really indeed have free will and then something on epidemiology and lastly a bit of practical experience on how to work someone up who has a potential functional neurological disorder and uh and then finally probably most of the episode is just going to be putting uh putting those skills to use in some real cases um and then finally to finish off I will walk you through Davor's Hall of Shame, some horrific things that I've gotten wrong uh, with functional patients or patients that I thought were functional. So what is a functional neurological disorder? So in essence, it's a disorder of function, not structure. And uh, that probably has left you even more confused. So we'll talk about it in more detail, but just remember that that's, a, that's what it is in, as a general principle. So to, to dive into the history of the term, um, so there's a there's an argument in neurology that's uh, that's gaining a lot of traction these days is that hysteria, which we all know is and rightly so, is like a very sexist and horrible relic of psychiatry and neurology, um, is thought to have completely disappeared. Um, but probably it didn't, and actually it's it's now what we call functional neurology, and it's just kind of much less recognized than it, than it used to be, but probably just as common. Um, so this is a quote by a guy called John Stone, who's the doyen of functional neurology in the He's world. The um, Chris Hemsworth of the GQ functional neurology world. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's, Chris Hemsworth is the John Stone of Hollywood. Ah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So there, this is a quote from, um, from one of his famous papers. So John Stone writes, we propose that when the neurological study of disease and the psychiatric study of neurosis became divergent, endeavors at the start of the 20th century, hysteria fell into a no man's land between these two specialties. Neurologists were not interested in seeing the patients and the patients were mostly not interested in seeing psychiatrists. Scientific obliteration had become almost complete by the 1960s when flawed data was published, which appeared to indicate that the diagnosis of hysteria usually turned out to be incorrect. We argue that it was not hysteria that disappeared, but rather medical interest in hysteria which is really interesting. It's a really interesting perspective that I hadn't heard until just recently. Yeah, I guess what he's saying is that we kind of lost the interest in the researcher of that phenomena of hysteria and moved away mm. from it. And we yeah, could have exactly. refined it a bit more and understood a bit more and made it not such a sexist, crazy thing, but an mm. actual thing that afflicts many people. 
Yeah, yeah, and and I think nowadays it's it's kind of uh, like you know the the ugly duckling of the neurology family. We don't like to talk about it. Many people um, kind of don't think it exists, um, but really it, it's just so so common. Anyone who's done a week on neurology would know that it's just ridiculously common. Mm. Uh, all right. So in terms of pathophysiology, and then I'll, I'll segue that into some terminology because it's been called lots of other things other than functional disorder and hysteria. Um, so what is the pathophysiology? We just we just don't know. Um, and, and I think proof of that is the fact that there are about five or six different names for like essentially the same phenomenon. I personally think um, Paget's observation of 1873 is still really relevant. I think he got it, got it in one back then. And he said, the patient says he cannot. It looks like he will not, but the truth is that the patient cannot will, uh, which is a really eloquent way of, um, of explaining what's going on. So, so some of the other words uh, or terms that we use to describe this disorder is conversion disorder, and this is still in DSM-5, uh, but there's some issues with that. Uh, one is that kind of in that term of conversion disorder, there's a lot of inbuilt Freudianism. Um, you know, the idea that everyone's got these overwhelming um, psychological issues in their subconscious and they don't know how to communicate that and that comes out as physical symptoms it implies a lot of pathophysiology that is was really just dreamed up by freud and, and never kind of confirmed by anyone um, and psychosomatic is kind of similarly considered to conversion disorder there's this other term dissociative disorder uh, um, and that's, that's what it is in this other classification called ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases. And that refers to the experience of derealization or depersonalization that's really common in these disorders, uh, but certainly not universal. So again, it's a kind of like a very narrow, not super accurate um, uh, definition. And then, and then we're left with functional neurological disorder. Um, and that's what, that's what we call it in Australia, at least. That's what everyone really refers it to. Um, uh, and that's what neurologists call it rather than psychiatrists as well. Um, and basically in this term, uh, there's the implication that it's a disorder of neurological function, but not structure. So it's not a, it's not a problem um, with, you know, the brain or the spinal cord that we can see, but kind of uh, the software is the, is the common analogy. Much like a computer has hardware and software, the brain maybe has a similar kind of thing and a functional neurological disorder is a problem with the software rather than the hardware. Is it, a, is it fair to describe it as a, it's a, uh, a malfunction of the coordination of the different components of the neurological system in a very broad sense, I guess? You know, when I think functional, it's, there's a problem with the overall function of the thing as opposed to a structural abnormality. I don't know if that's helpful, but I just kind of thought about that. I've never thought about that before. It's more, All right, I was figured it out. All right, let's <laughs> call <Nedjim. laughs> um, uh, Yeah, look, I think that's one of the kind of pathophysiological features that it's not, you know, it's not like there's anything wrong with your limbic cortex and your kind of motor cortex, but maybe there's just some, some abnormal connections between the two. Or connections well, yeah, and I remember stronger. a talk by one of the professors at Monash who was sort of talking about how their conscious attention and their unconscious attention are sort of out of sync. And I was just thinking about how it's really is a discoordination problem. But anyway, come on. Mm. There's a PhD in that for you if you want. Yeah. Which I know you do. But yeah, I, I find the term a little bit, un makes me a little bit uncomfortable because it in implies like a dualism, right? That, um, you know, there's kind of like a, a mind and a body and they're separate things, um, which is not really how good uh, but not necessarily. scientific materialists think of the body these days. No, we won't get into this discussion, but yeah. 
like you know we, i like i say to patients i'm like look there's nothing on your mri there's not a hardware problem but really that's a problem with the mri like probably if the mri was good enough and like there are mris that can see it like functional mris um, well, see a functional mri is not the same as a normal mri a normal mri no. gives you detail and structure but it's like looking at say the you know if you have i don't know to put it in terms that i understand you know if you have a problem with say an arrhythmia in the heart um, then that may not manifest on a structural image of the heart, but it, it is really a problem with the con, you know a coordination of the conduction. To but some when degree. you think when you think about it, like everything is a structure, right? Like even if it's just a very very small structure, like just the neurons are structured in a way that's bad. Um, but it's and physiology like versus see... anatomy in one way, you know? Like yeah, which is which is like a false false dichotomy, is what I'm saying. And I think yeah, this is, is a physiology false really well. a, a false dichotomy. I mean, if you had a whole bunch of channels and they fired in the wrong order, if you took a still picture of them, they would still look to be in the same geographical position, but they'd be firing in the wrong order, and that you, that would be a problem of sort of physiology, but without a structural problem. But yeah, I would just say say that your picture is not high definition enough. Like if you but manage your picture to take... doesn't involve movement, motion, and and you know a sequence of event it doesn't involve time. It only involves space. It only measures three mm. dimensions. Mm. Um, but your space is obviously different at different moments in time. Anyway, I don't think people really want to, <laughs> to try and, try and um, fucking take down Descartes um, and, and dualism. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's, it's hard to think about really. And I think everyone has a lot of difficulty thinking about it. And that's because we don't understand it. Uh, and you know when we don't understand something, that's when we like to pull this out. The biopsychosocial model. Um, yeah. Which is you exactly. know you know what I equate it to? There's anyone who says chemokines and cytokines without elaborating further. That means they don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there's definitely a biopsychosocial model that can be applied here. And look, I, to be honest, it does make some sense in this kind of setting. So the bio is typically like of the biological part is you know pain or like sleep deprivation or having some actual organic neurological problems um, predisposes you to functional neurological. Then you've got the cycle psychological, um, which includes uh, emotional disorders or personality disorders. And then you've got the social, um, so, you know, legal compensation and that kind of thing. Um, so if you look at look at this in the three dimensions of the biopsychosocial model, it's often um, helps you understand your patients. Um, and then the other, the other thing that we've kind of already alluded to a little bit with um, pathophysiology is that we are making some headway with functional MRI um, studies into understanding exactly what's happening. Um, but, uh, but those studies are kind of very inconsistent and very small and, and people who know anything about fMRI knows that, will know that those studies are not generally high quality, but they're, as you kind of alluded to or figured out on your own, Eugenius Rahul, um, <laughs> is that uh, with um, functional disorders, you often see an alteration of the connection between different parts of the brain, usually the movement centers and the emotional centers. All right. So that, if you haven't turned off the podcast, well done. Um, it's about, yeah, if you it's, stuck through that, you're really one of our dedicated fans. Yeah, <laughs> it's about to get like a little bit more useful and less philosophical um, for kind of medical students. There are probably still people out there still not knowing what we're actually talking about when we say. I, I like I'm fully aware of that. Like people have listened to this. Like like I've listened to this for 15 minutes. I don't know what a functional disorder. <laughs> 
but yes, which is very reasonable response. You're not stupid. We're just doing a bad job of explaining this. So let me tell you what a functional disorder is. It's inconsistency and incongruity with known neurological disease. That's the that's the kind of fundamental concept between a functional disorder. So it disorder sounded like you function, said known there, but you said no neurological disease. Didn't no. You? Uh, yeah, no, known, known neurological known. disease. Known neurological. Oh, so inconsistency, inconsistency with known and incongruity with known neurological so just disease. Just to clarify so, here, Davos. So someone has symptoms of a neurological disease, such as sensation yeah, yeah. changes, weakness, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it's not consistent with a known organic, quote unquote, exactly. neurological disease. Exactly. So they're having they're having fits, but and you're like, this does not fit with a seizure. This is not what a seizure looks like. Maybe they've got a functional neurological disorder or they've got arm weakness that just doesn't fit with any kind of pattern of weakness that we know is caused by a spinal cord injury or brain injury. So that might be a functional neurological disorder. So that's a really the key concept you've got to remember. Ignore all that um, stuff that we just said before. So, <laughs> so DSM-5, what are the DSM-5 criteria? Uh, I love reading your criteria. It's the that's yeah. How this it makes is your sound really exciting. exciting. I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> who's got uh, a voice for this? So, the first of the four criteria, uh, five criteria, four criteria, um, is one or more symptoms of altered voluntary motor or sensory function. So you have to have an actual alteration in your symptoms, and it's interesting that it has to be voluntary there. I guess that kind of alludes to the fact that you know, even though we'll talk about this later. They just, they, they, in terms of whether they're putting it on, quote unquote, it, it does have to fall into the voluntary motor or sensory function. So that's number one. Number two, clinical findings are not compatible with a recognized neurological slash medical condition. So again, that, you know, a seizure that doesn't fit with a seizure or weakness that doesn't fit with a pattern of weakness. Three, the symptom or deficit's not better explained by another medical or potentially even psychiatric disorder. So it's a diagnosis of exclusion to some degree. And four, the symptom or deficit causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of function, which is sort of a little tag on to almost every uh, psychiatric diagnosis in the DSM. And what they're basically saying is you can be a bit weird as long as it doesn't impact on your ability to function most of the time. But if it starts to do that, then it becomes a problem. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. That's like the definition of a disease, right? If it's not affecting mm-hmm. you, it's not a disease. All right, so there are some really important myths that I just want to bust straight up because a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about functional neurological disorders. So there's four main myths. One is that all patients with functional neurological disorders have psychological problems. So that's not true. Um, You know, there's the Freudian perspective that everyone does on a subconscious level. They're just not acknowledging it. But the fact is that we see loads and loads of patients with this problem that don't seem to have any severe depression or anxiety and have never had a history of that. Um, myth two, which is kind of similar to this, that normal people don't get functional disorders. Also not true. I've seen so many patients that are presented with functional neurological disorders that otherwise are just like completely normal functioning uh, members of society with no premorbidities or other issues. Um, so another, another myth is that patients with functional disorders just need psychotherapy. Also not true. Um, so physiotherapy and physical therapy is really, really important. We'll get into that a bit later. And then this is the most important one, I think, um, that patients have either a neurological disorder or a psychological disorder. Um, so there's lots of patients that have both. So they've either got they've got a neurological disorder and they've got a functional neurological disorder. This is a term we call functional overlay, where there's definitely something there that we can see, but their presentation is out of proportion with what we'd expect. Um, and so in those cases, we say functional overlay. 
And I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of neurological disorders have an associated psychological condition with them, either as a result of the you know, debilitation that comes with the neurological disorder or as a direct effect of the sort of structural problems associated with that neurological disorder. Mm-hmm. All right. So next question, Rahul, are they making it up? Are they putting it on? Yes. You are not in agreement with everyone else. From, <laughs> I still believe in Freud hysteria. Onwards, I still believe in the science of the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long line of people that think you're wrong, uh, including me. Um, so they're, yeah, they're probably not. Um, and there's a few lines of evidence for that. Um, one is that across the centuries, a lot of these patients present very similarly, um, which uh, makes us think that, you know, if, if people were making it up, they'd probably be more variations in how they do it, but they're startlingly similar some of these presentations. The second line of evidence, the patients are, are keen to pursue kind of long hospital stays and very uncomfortable investigations because I think that they don't know what's what's happening and they want to find out just as much as you do. And then the final line of evidence is going back to my old friend, functional MRIs, is that people have done studies where there's patients with a functional neurological disorder and there's someone who's just been told to fake weakness and their fMRIs look very different to one another. However, however, uh, most people who deal regularly with um, functional neurological disorders on the psychiatric and neurological side do think there is a spectrum of intentionality. It's not a yes, no question. Um, there's an awareness um, uh, some level awareness of what's happening in most patients and that probably um, goes almost to malingering in some the very rare few and then some who have almost no idea uh, what's going on at all and really part of your your goal as a doctor is to push them along that spectrum of awareness but you don't have to think about it as a black and white thing because very few things in, in neurology and psychiatry are or right, epidemiology so i said it's common how common is it rahul uh, 50% of neurology patients have some element of functionality, including... Just so pull that out, out of your, yep. your bum. No, I've read good. about it. No, no, uh, nice. Did my pre-reading. Important part of cardiology training. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's very common. And the thing you'll notice is that 50% of neurology outpatients have some element of functionality and 15% have a primary functional disorder. So what's even more common is that functional overlay type situation where I talked about. So like 50% of the patients that we see in clinic have, we think, have some kind of functional overlay to it. <clears throat> but you've got to remember the gold standards for diagnosis of this, uh, you know, pretty uh, loose, neurolog- fast and loose. <clears throat> neurological opinion. So mm. who knows? All right. So what's your approach to a patient um, with a functional neurological disorder back when Um, you're in your edge or if you see someone with, I don't know, bad chest pain or something? You hire a private investigator to follow them around town and wait till the moment they slip up and they drop their cane and they still walk perfectly straight. And you slam the photos down on the table. Yeah, case closed. Uh, yeah, what do you um, so do? I, yeah, I do take a lot of time to take history and uh, I think you make an important point here, which is that history and feeling like someone's listening to them is often an important part of the treatment because these patients get brushed locked to the side a lot, if, especially if other people think they have a functional neurological disorder. They sort of, uh, people can be quite dismissive, which sort of can worsen a lot of the symptoms. Um, and I think it's also worth focusing on that, what I call the functional B symptoms. So things about fatigue, pain, sleep, concentration, and mood, and seeing whether there's anything obvious that's popping up that. Uh, and I always try and take a, you know, subtle, um, but thorough, uh, social history about what are the stresses may be going on in their life, whether that's work relationships or just sense of self-worth. 
Um, yeah, trying to t- touch on those things, just see if I can build a case for, you know, perhaps some associated uh, conditions. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good list. The other thing I'd add is this uh, kind of phenomenon of derealization that I, I talked about before. So this is this kind of depersonalization, thinking like they're, they're not, everything's not real, or they're looking at themselves from a bird's eye view or a third person perspective uh, that it's an experience that's very hard to put into words and so patients won't often volunteer it but it's thought to be like very indicative that this is a functional neurological disorder if you can draw something out like something like that out of them but yeah basically you've just got to drain the symptoms dry just got to let them talk um, it's really important kind of that first inter medical interaction with with someone with a functional neurological disorder to get that right is really uh, really, really important. Um, it's very important to make the diagnosis correctly because if someone's got an organic disorder that needs treatment and you've just diagnosed a functional neurological disorder, that's obviously a disaster. Also a complete disaster the other way where someone thinks they've got MS or they've had a stroke, but really it's functional. That's really, really big disaster. So that's really important to get right. And then it's also really important to take the time of the patient um, and make sure that that first interaction is a positive one. Um, and then once you once you've had a chat to them and had to, taken this long history and exam, um, it's it's you pretty much always still do all the tests. To be completely honest, um, in patients with weakness, I'll usually still get an MRI, brain, and spine. In patients with um, I think have pseudo seizures, I still do an EEG. Uh, most people with a functional neurological disorder will still uh, get an MRI. All right, so moving on to some cases. Um, so we'll start off with a, a weakness case. So all these cases are, are real uh, patients that I've seen. So 30-year-old 30, 30, 30 lady who's um, presented um, with right-sided weakness. She's a referral from trauma. Um, she had a car accident um, and she's got a normal MRI brain and spine, which they've done for you, which is nice. And then I've called you up and said, this 30-year-old lady, she's had a car accident. She can't move her right arm at all. Her leg's fine. It's just her arm. Um, can you please come and see it? So just with that phone referral, what are you thinking? What are you worried about? Yeah, traumatic injury to the brachial plexus, you would have thought, after a car accident. Yeah, so if there's nothing on the brain and spine and the whole arm is not working um, and there's a trauma, you'd, you'd be very worried that she's kind of um, torn her brachial plexus. So I went and saw her very quickly. I was really worried about this poor girl. Uh, and then I, I take, a, take a bit of a history um, and I start relaxing a little bit. Um, so she tells me it was a, a 20 kilometer per hour impact, very low speed, and it was side on, and she was on the opposite side. So I'm like, oh, that doesn't really sound like something that could, uh, you know, completely ruin your, your brachial plexus. Um, so what are some other questions that you'd be asking in history to try and really nail down, um, is this or- organic or not? So, yeah, I mean, you've had this car accident. You want to know when did the weakness start in relation to the car accident? Uh and yeah. did they have any associated sensory loss aside from the weakness? Because, you know, if you're expecting the whole brachial plexus to be shorn off or to be torn, you'd mm. expect that the sensory neurons would be affected as well. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, on both of those points, you know, some red flags are popping up. So first she says, actually, the weakness started later. I was completely fine at first. It wasn't until I got to hospital that I just found I couldn't move my arm despite any more trauma. And then she's got no change in sensation at all. So that's very unusual. All right, so then I, I do my exam, and and um, at this point I'm thinking oh, maybe this is functional, um, and and so I do a typical neurological exam. You start off with tone as you always do, and I find this is really, 
really useful once you've got a little experience in, in diagnosing these cases because their tone was not flaccid. Like when you move someone's arm around randomly and they've got a normal functioning arm, you kind of just get a sense of tone and some resistance. And that's what I was getting from her. Her reflexes were completely normal. Um, her sensation was completely normal. And then when I came to check power, I just asked her to lift her right arm off the bed and she just couldn't move it at all. But then what you do in these cases is you say, what about if I move it for you? What if I get you started? Um, and so what I ended up doing is like I put her arm like kind of perpendicular in the air and then she could keep that in that position. So I find that's really common in, in functional, functional patients that they feel like they can't move their arm, like they can't will it to move. You know, that's a disorder of will that, that Paget um, um, talked about. But if you start the movement for them, um, like get the mom in that position and just ask them to hold it, that they can do. And that obviously is not consistent uh, with organic weakness. Yeah. Um, so similar to uh, what we talked about before, Rahul, you would, you'd have a... Um, you know, really open, honest conversation with them. You'd be very empathic. Um, you kind of talk about mind-body interactions. Um, and uh, you... Do a little yoga. Other... Exactly, yeah, yeah. Crack out a meditation uh, there and there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other thing that I I do is I really emphasize that it's, it's good news. You know, like you don't want to have a torn brachial plexus. You'd much rather have a functional neurological disorder. I think that's a really important thing to tell them. Mm. Um, is there any kind of metaphor that you like to use when you're explaining this? Because, you know, as we're, as listeners can no doubt hear, like it's a hard thing to wrap your head around as a doctor with a lot of experience, but a patient who's like never even heard of this, um, it's really hard to explain it to them. So how do you do yeah, it? Yeah, I've always used the software hardware thing ever since you told me about it. I think that patients, every patient I've said that to sort of gets it and picks up on it really quickly and then, yeah, understands and gets with it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's a good way of looking at it. Um, you know, the hardware that's that's not something that you can fix with a quick reboot or a or a patch or something like that. But um, uh, you know, software is much more malleable and can change from day to day. Um, so yeah, that that conversation, as I keep saying, is really really important. You want to get that right. Um, and then the next the next part of the treatment is really good physiotherapy and someone like this. And there's some physiotherapists that um, are really, uh, really experienced in, in helping these kind of patients. All right, so the, this kind of case is supposed to demonstrate um, uh, how, to, how functional weakness might uh, present. Um, so Rahul, there's a few other things I wanted to talk about with uh, functional weakness and how to pick it up. Do you know what Hoover's sign is? Yeah, Hoover's sign, it's quite hard to explain, I think, without actually watching someone do it. But when you uh, place one hand under the, so one, if you place one hand under the glute of the leg that you think is weak, and you get the other leg to flex, involuntarily, or you know, as a part of our usual reaction when we're flexing one leg at the hip, we push the other one back. And so if someone is giving no effort into pushing against your hand you can tell because they won't push the other one back whereas in someone who had um, that true weakness and wasn't able to flex the other one would push back so yeah. I think it is a lot easier to actually watch your video have it someone explain mm -hmm. it to you but yeah it's Hoover's sign is what it's called yeah so you're testing hip extension both um, with contralateral flexion and without uh, and my, my approach to this is uh, I, I won't tell them what I'm doing at first. I'll be like, just without testing flexion at the same time, I'll just see what they can do hip extension by themselves. And then I'll test it uh, using Hoover signs or using the flexion on the other side to see if that gives me any more strength. 
Um, and then after that, I'll just tell them what I'm doing. Like I'll explain it to them. And I think that, uh, I think that patients find that really useful when they find that actually the, re- the leg is obviously working. Like there is strength there, you know, their spinal cord um, is working, their brain is working. They're just having trouble willing it to work. Um, and that could be a really important part of the therapeutic process. Like, but it's not supposed to be like an aha, a gotcha, you know, like slam down the PI photo <laughs> showing that it's working. Um, it's supposed to be like a therapeutic, nice thing to do. Um, so similar to that, there's the hip adductor sign. So you, you check the hip abduction uh, one side at a time and you might find that it's weak, but, and then you test both at the same time. And it's really hard um, to when you're, when you're using one hip abductor to not use the other one if it's not organically weak. Um, and the other thing you hear, Rahul, is, is collapsing weakness. Have you heard that term? Yeah. Be like, what would, how would you describe what is that? So I think when they are trying to say, let's say they're flexing their biceps and you're holding onto their wrist and seeing how much uh, power they can give you, Mm-mm. it sort of gives you a bit of power and then drops off and then gives you a bit of power and then drops off. So it's this sort of fluttering weakness in a way. Yeah, yeah. So since I I used to put a lot of credence into this where back when I was a resident of BPT and very inexperienced, but uh, I'm still very inexperienced, but the more, the more neurology I do, the much less I put into this collapsing weakness thing that people think they can tell. Like there's so many causes of organic weakness. In fact, one third of the causes of organic weakness have a collapsing element. I see it all the time with people with stroke. They kind of only lift up their arm for a little bit and then it collapses kind of thing. Um, and in fact, with the cerebellum, if you've got a cerebellar lesion, um, you get something called motor impersistence, um, where the, because the cerebellum is, is, you know, like modifying your power. Um, and if your cerebellum is not working, then it, there's fluctuations in power. So yeah, collapsing weakness, you'll hear thrown around, but I personally don't put that much stock in it. Hmm. All right, next case. So this is a seizure case. Um, got a 23 year old lady so she's referred for seizures she's got a depression a history of depression fibromyalgia and migraines um, and she tells you that for the last couple of years she's had frequent episodes where she loses complete control of her body for up to half an hour at a time so are your spidey senses tingling already are there any red flags here for a functional neurological disorder yeah so having a sort of seizure that lasts for half an hour is very unusual with that being very rare like it just doesn't happen it doesn't happen with real seizures but yeah go on yep uh and then i guess there's also the what sounds like a generalized seizure and that both sides of her body are involved she loses complete control of her body yet she remembers things and normally most people have a generalized seizure will sort of come back and have that postictal confusion period and often have a lot of amnesia about the whole Mm -hmm. thing and not know what was going on so so if patients if epilepsy patients always read the textbook then it would always be a case of like to have to be aware during your seizure, it can only affect one side of your body, like a focal seizure affecting your right arm or your left arm, but everything, the other parts of your brain are okay, so you maintain awareness. Uh, that turns out to not be such a hard and fast rule once you do um, a bit of epilepsy, but it is a good, it's a good red flag, I think. Um, so tell me, what would you do next? Like you'd obviously nail down this history a little bit more. So what, what are the parts of the history that you'd really uh really want to get to like how would you approach yeah i think going back to what we were talking about earlier is taking that wide history so psychological stresses relationships uh and stresses at work and personal psychological stresses um trying to nail down from either someone who was around her or videos what actually happens during the seizures because there are some very 
characteristic and some very uncharacteristic movements for a seizure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I always, you know, fall back on the postictal period, tongue biting, incontinence, and cyanosis, those sort of hallmarks that a seizure's actually occurred. And mm-hmm. again, if someone's had a generalized tonic clonic seizure for half an hour, I'd expect her to be dazed for at least 10 minutes afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that's basically a good approach. So what I do with all my seizure histories or all my loss of consciousness histories, I just go in chronological order because it's much easier to remember. Um, and, you know, there's certain things that happen in chronological order with a, um, you know, an epileptic seizure um, and there's things that tend to happen in, in a pseudo seizure. So an epileptic seizure would typically be, you know, there'll be no particular warning or they might get a bit of an aura um, and then, the actual seizure itself won't last very long. It'll only be 30 seconds or so. There'll usually be a tonic phase and a tonic-clonic phase. Um, and uh, it, the, it, like, it won't change in those 30 seconds. Like The actual movements will be quite stereotyped. Um, and then after the seizure, uh, a real seizure, an epileptic seizure, uh, what will happen is there'll be uh, a long period of kind of confusion or drowsiness. And often they'll have this kind of kind of occluded breathing um and then often as rahul said then you'll notice that they've bitten the tongue and they'll be um incontinent on the other hand this one this like when you take the chronological history of this particular seizure they always happen at certain times like they pretty reliably happen um when she fights with her partner in particular um and then in t- they last hours sometimes not just half an hour like she said but she can have these for like two hours um and then, as I said, she remembers the whole thing. She remembers the whole two hours. And then they're not stereotyped. Like each one is quite different to another. And also the movements within the same episode are not stereotyped. There's this like real waxing and waning. Like sometimes it's a little bit of shaking, sometimes a bit of more shaking. That's like really classic. And then once it, once the shaking stops, she's just able to get up and go back about her business, which is obviously really weird for an epileptic seizure. And then she's got no tongue biting or incontinence. So now this story does not sound like an epileptic seizure. Um, so what I would do next with a patient like this, um, similar to the conversation previously with the weakness, um, I might, you know, raise the possibility of a functional, um, neurological disorder, but still, you know, stay diagnostically humble and saying, I don't know for sure, but this is what I'm thinking at the moment. Um, and <laughs> hilariously, I don't know who, who signed off on this, but, um, functional neurological disorder in, in seizures is called. PNES, penis, um, psychogenic, <laughs> non-epileptic seizures. <laughs> uh, and it's not a joke. You'll see that on discharge. Somewhere. It's just ridiculous <laughs> mm-hmm. how they got through. Um, and the other thing, Rahul, would you, um, would, you, would you bother doing any more investigations or are you pretty satisfied with that history? Yeah, I always do more investigations just because, one, you don't want to miss something, a diagnosis in people like this. And, uh, yeah, they can present so weirdly that, yeah, it's totally possible that there is something unusual going on here. Epilepsy is so weird. Like the the amount of different seizures you get. Like I had a I had an epileptic patient last year. Remember that her seizures were triggered by brushing her teeth. Yeah. Um, like it can just do anything. It's just such a weird heterogeneous disease. The more like the again, the more experience I get, the more like I don't know what's a seizure and what's a pseudo seizure in history anymore. So I, I tend to all these patients. I basically order an MRI and an EEG, um, and sometimes you need um, 
uh, a prolonged like e uh, epilepsy admission where they get um, video monitoring to see exactly what's happening. But that, that that doesn't mean you have to tell them you've got epilepsy and we'll find it and secretly be thinking this is not epilepsy. Just be honest with them and say, look, I think this is probably not ep epilepsy. I think this is probably what we call penis, which is a great <laughs> disease to have. It's a good thing it's, to have penis. Yeah, it's great to have penis. <laughs> Put a penis in your life. <laughs> yeah, penis, National Penis Day is actually tomorrow. Here's a Here's a pink... <laughs> pink ribbon. Um, <laughs> pink ribbon. <laughs> a fleshy uh, pink ribbon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can like just be honest with them. Like I, a lot of people have like an approach of like tricking or deceiving patients in this case, but I don't think you need to. Just be honest. Um, and the other thing is definitely avoid anti-epileptics in, in cases like this when you're strongly suspicious. You know, there's not there's not huge reason to uh, putting um, epileptic patients on anti-epileptics um, and if there's diagnostic uncertainty I you know err on the side of not giving it to them because they're all like really toxic drugs all right next case functional tremor this is also a real case 25 year old guy presents with a new tremor um, is referred from ED he has no past history whatsoever no psychological issues never had a tremor before so all sudden onset he was doing weights and then afterwards he just developed a tremor of the right hand um, there's no other symptoms or, or neurology um, are there any red flags here Rahul uh, so well far. I mean 25 with the tremor is a bit unusual pretty um, weird yeah yeah and it suddenly comes on after weights i guess that's strange normally tremors and this i think it was a serious chronically developing thing yeah, except yeah. in specific neurological conditions so remember that old that definition we talked about the the incongruity with known neurological diseases like yeah it's weird like it, when something's weird then functional neurological disorder should you know go near the top of your list like it's yeah. strange for a 25 year old guy to have a sudden onset tremor sudden onset tremors are weird at the best of times but particularly in this case but what is your differential for sudden onset tremor uh, I guess a cerebellar stroke of some variety would be fairly sudden. Mm -hmm. Not usually cerebellar, but yeah, like a, um, a subcortical stroke can can give you sudden onset trauma, but like extremely rare, but it can happen. But you, you, you need to be aware of that differential, I suppose. Mm. Um, so what's your, what's your approach to examining something like this? Obviously you do a full neurological exam all the time, but like what are things are you kind of really focusing on? Uh, yeah, so I guess you want to nail out the tremor itself and you want to see mm. uh, where is it affecting, how fast is the tremor going, does it occur at rest, does it occur with action, does it occur when they're trying to focus or just you know, hold a position like a postural tremor. Um, mm. And then I guess, yeah, the next thing you want to do is see if there are any other associated symptoms or exam findings with it, such as yeah, weakness yeah. or yeah, a change in their gait. So th this tremor and this guy I saw, the tremor was like very irregular. Uh, it was involving different muscles at different time. Um, and it occurred in all positions. It occurred at rest. It occurred um, when he was holding his arms out, so like a posture. And it was also kinetic. And also when he was moving, it was just there all the time in this like very irregular, weird way. Um, so there's some, some red flags here that this might be functional. Um, one is yeah, the irregularity, like a lot of organic tremors are regular in their kind of um, oscillations but that's not a hard and fast rule uh, and also again not a hard fast rule but it is unusual to have a tremor that just occurs all the time unless it's like really really severe so Rahul in your bag of tricks are there any like specific um, tests that you might do to like try and tease out that this is functional versus organic um, yeah I guess there are a couple of strange tests which like entrainment, seeing if you can get them to do another action 
and get the tremor to take on the frequency of that other action. So like, or you, you know, can getting... be doing that action, right? So like, you can without telling them what you're doing, you can just start tapping on their knee or whatever while you're watching the tremor and talking to them, and you notice that the tremor starts taking on the rhythm of your tapping. Yeah. Okay. So that's one of them, and then you can um, distract them. So you know, you tell a funny joke, or you start juggling, or you know, you start threatening their loved ones. And if they get in, distracted, in Rahul's stop... case, like you just show your face, and the joke yeah, is <laughs> <laughs> this guy? Love that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So distractibility would be a one for something because I don't have Rahul's face or or charisma. What I have to do is um, uh, I. I I get them to like do like a complicated movement with their other hand that's not having a tremor. So like you go, you get them to like move their fingers in a certain way, like one, three, two, four, five. Like it's quite hard to do without really focusing on it. And then you just watch the other hand at the same time and, and the tremor um, often disappears if it's functional. So I think it's really important here. I probably should have made a bigger deal of this before, but functional disorders are not always a diagnosis of exclusion. Like there's positive exam and history features uh, that will lead you to a diagnosis of functional neurological disorder. So Hoover's test, the one we discussed before, was a really good one. And these functional tremor tests are really good um, as well. It's a positive diagnosis a lot of the time. All right, last one. Um, functional memory problems. So 40-year-old lady, she presents with cognitive issues. Um, she's got a past history of depression. She reports she's, she's getting really stupid and she can't remember things and it's been a problem for the last two years um and although she she thinks like she's definitely got dementia and like her brain's just not working at all she's actually still able to work um as a teacher and there's been no concerns raised by her um by her workplace or anything like that so any any red flags here that this may not be dementia as this lady fears uh, she's young, though I guess there are always, um, you know, stranger neurological conditions that can present with a young, young age. Uh, Just to reemphasize, all these red flags, as you will discover when relative. I go, go through my hall of shame, are not hard and fast rules. There mm. are no hard and fast rules in, in neurology. Yeah, it's one of the yeah, beauties yeah, of right. it compared to cardiology. Um, and then I guess for me, she has a past history of depression, which you know is always can always be a mimic for cognitive snow, slowing. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I guess it's been an issue for the two years and she's not really had any uh, problems with her function, I think you said. Yeah. Um, and lastly, I think you mentioned the term informant, which I love, <laughs> uh, used in cognitive neurology. So she's actually informed. She's ratted on herself, even yeah. though she knows that which stitches is weird. get That's stitches. That's not how it usually happens. Yeah. yeah, normally someone else comes along. So yeah. all those things put together is a bit unusual. Yeah, I think this is strange. But what would I do next? I would actually still um, do all the usual assessments. Um, so I would do like a Mocha or an MMSE or an Adam Brooks. Adam Brooks, um, you probably wouldn't have heard in med school, but it's like a very thorough um, cognitive test. Um, and you just do it. And you and there's a particular pattern that you tend to see in functional patients. Um, again, it's a positive diagnosis, as I have recently just started saying. <laughs> um <laughs> But the, the features you look out for is like they're very slow because in, in like a normal person's mind, like being cognitively impaired um, means you're just slow. Like you can do things, but you're slow. But that's often not how it really is. There's like often they just confabulate. Like they're talking very smoothly, but they're just talking absolute rubbish. Yeah, just listen um, to me. <laughs> like this entire podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so yeah, this slowness is like 
um, very frustrating to listen to, but often a, a sign of that this is functional. Um, another one is like near misses. Um, like they'll like they'll get serial serial sevens, which is the one where you count backwards from 107s, 93, 86, etc. Um, and they'll just they'll get like one off consistently, um, which is you know impressive in of itself. They're doing more calculation really. Um, <laughs> And the other one that you'll see, the other one you can do is you can do a test so simple that someone with like a, a MMSE of 10 who like is a high level care in a nursing home, that's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but like someone with like really severe dementia who can't, uh, you know, certainly can't survive on their own would get right. Like, you know, you hide two objects behind your back, like a remote and a pen and which one, which one was in which hand and, and someone uh, with a functional disorder will, will get that wrong, even though someone with like severe Alzheimer's would so there's a more positive test for you. All right. Um, so story time now, Rahul. Um, yeah. any, Shame any, yourself. Shame anyone yourself. Anyone who might be listening. So the point of this is, as I've kind of alluded to a little bit in this podcast already, um, diagnosing functional neurological disorders is very important. You don't want to get it wrong either way. And it's, and it's also really hard. Um, and when you're a cocky young doctor like I used to be and probably still am on my bad days. Um, uh, you know, you think you understand these rules about, you know, what a what a pseudo seizure case is supposed to look like, what a functional weakness case is supposed to look like, or conversely, you know, what what a seizure is supposed to look like, what uh, you know, all these textbook cases of neurological things are supposed to look like. And when it doesn't look like that, you're like functional. Um, and it would be nice if the world work that way but, but it doesn't um and uh i've just got so many things spectacularly wrong because of uh, because of that kind of mistake so uh there's five cases so the first the first one um was a girl who she, i saw last year she was 18 she was in her english exam in year 12 and she was very stressed about this english exam as you are in year 12 and then midway through exam her hand just stops working and like that's all I almost needed to hear. Like, what causes sudden onset weakness in an 18-year-old other than stress in that setting? And I just went straight into my software, harder explanation, etc. Everyone was like really happy with that. A pantry there, they breathed a big sigh of relief. She like seemed relieved, but like didn't really believe me. I'm like, um, that sigh of relief is kind of a bit of a warning sign, actually. Um, when they're so accepting, often they're not functional. Um, and then I went, I went and looked at the CT brain. Um, and there was like a hypodensity, it's like looked a bit strange. And I was just so convinced that this was functional that I was like, oh, that must be an artifact. Um, and didn't, didn't, uh, think much else of it, but said, look, we should just get an MRI anyway for complete. And it's like massive stroke, big stroke, big, um, left MCA stroke. So obviously very concerning in an 18 year old, completely wrong. And then I had to go back to the family and explain. Did she have a patent foramen ovale that you sent to the cardiologist to close? She did, she did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she? Yeah. Bam. There you go. Everything comes uh, back to cardiology, guys. That's, good to that's right, Rahul. That's right. <laughs> that's the real point of this podcast. Um, uh, next one. Um, so, 23-year-old girl. She presents the ED four times, and I see her the fourth time. She's presented to, like, four different EDs as well. Like, she's from Frankston, she's got a Monash, and all these other ones. She turns up at the Royal Melbourne ED, um, and she's like, my whole body is tingling. And like, that's again, like, that's all I need to hear. I was like, what on earth causes your whole body to tingle? Like that's, what nerve is that? What part of the brain is that? I'm like, every bit of your skin? She's like, yep, every bit of my skin is tingling. 
and I go, here we go. Completely normal exam. Um, I like talk to my consultant, like being cocky about it. Look at this girl, looks completely functional, obviously. Um, but you know, what do you think? You need to see her. And um, she's like, admit her lumbar puncture nerve conduction studies. I'm like, what are you on about? And then three days later, it's like the worst case of Guillain-Barre I've ever seen. Like she just cannot move at all and, and is intubated in, in ICU. Uh, I'll tell you what very... makes my whole body tingle. <laughs> hearing about hear about your mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there you go. Uh, next case. Um, again, another young guy who's um, like under a lot of stress at school. Um, he's got very... Uh, demanding parents who are making him study for hours a day. Um, and then they, they start noticing that he's just doing this like weird hand flapping behaviors during his um, study. Um, and, uh, and he doesn't, um, it doesn't, re- denies it, doesn't, re- doesn't remember doing it. And they've taken a whole bunch of videos and I'm looking at these videos and it's just this like really kid just diligently studying. And then in the middle of it, just like this bizarre movement where like both hands are flapping, he's shaking his head and he's kind of looking blankly it lasts like 10 seconds and back straight right back to study. I'm like, that is not like any seizure I've read about in a textbook. He's obviously just stressed. Again, we do this um, video monitoring um, EEG and he's just having seizures like every every several times an hour. Um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't fit with the textbook necessarily. Uh, all right, second last one from Davos Hall of Shame. So young girl, 28, um, she's well otherwise, um, but she just comes in with some like vague leg weakness. Uh, like, oh, that's a bit strange. Um, unusual for a young girl to come in with this. And I do a bit of a Hoover's test, which I, you know, I've learnt that if the Hoover's positive, they must be functional. We're like definitely positive Hoover's test. I'm like, ah, okay. I will amble over to the stroke scanner. We'll do the scans. It's important to do the scans, but I think this is functional. And I'm, I'm actually talking to the to the radiographer. And he, I remember he's got like his back to the CT scan as it's coming through. Um, and I'm just telling him how confident I am in my clinical acumen that this is this is going to be functional. And this I like to think that you were filing scan. your nails that time, like and doing that. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and I'm just watching the CT scan appear behind his head. And she's got massive left frontal lobe bleed. <laughs> I just like cut myself off in the middle of my sentence. It's like, <laughs> scrap that. Don't turn cool. around. Just walk out of the room. Yeah. And, <laughs> Don't uh, worry about that. Let's yeah. do a CT angiogram though, just to really make sure. And uh, I'm just going to call neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last case. This is an absolute cracker. Um, uh, this again, a guy in year 12 um, who uh, comes in with not really being able to move his eyes, um, walks in a, like a little bit ataxic in a bit of a funny way um, and has some like very patchy sensation change. Um, and, th- and this is happening um, at a time when uh, you know he's very stressed, he's doing year 12 exams. I think he wants to get into Victorian College of the Arts um, and, and that is supposed to be like in the coming weeks. And he's actually had something similar before. He had apparently Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is very rare in kids, but he, he had it diagnosed as a kid, uh, but that was diagnosed clinically uh, because he couldn't tolerate the nerve conduction studies. Um, and then he had some similar symptoms a few years later um, in the context of some stress, and that was called uh, a functional neurological disorder. And so he comes to us, um, he's not really uh, moving his eyes, he's walking in this funny way. Everything looks like it could be functional, except um, 
his uh, pupils are fixed and dilated. Like his pupils are not responding to light whatsoever, which is obviously not a sign that you see in functional neurology. Um, but so, so initially we were quite concerned and we did all the tests, you know, we did a very thorough nerve conduction study, MRI of his brain and spine, we did a lump puncture, a whole bunch of bloods, everything comes back completely normal. And I'm like, this is bizarre. Like he's, he's either got like, um, you know, recurrent Miller Fisher, which you don't have to worry about this as a medical student, but like has never been described before, particularly in that age group, or he's putting something in his eyes because he doesn't want to do this um, stressful test. Um, and so we uh, we asked him, did you put something in his eyes, like in front of his parents? And he denied it. And we're like, well, I don't know about this. And we were still very convinced. And so I presented him to a meeting, um, to a meeting of neurologists. And I said, I came to the conclusion that obviously this guy is functional or malingering because he's putting stuff in his eyes. And like everyone in the room was just looking at me like, what are you on about? <laughs> what this guy, you need to figure out what this guy has. Um, and I remember I came back from... Um, from that meeting and the speech pathologist like rushes up to me um, and uh, and says oh he's swallowing he's aspirating all this food um, like they've done a, um, a fluoroscopy test and all his all his food is being aspirated which is obviously again not something you can see in a functional neurological disorder uh, yes yeah, so very embarrassing so then we did we did some more tests and then the nerve conduction studies were finally normal uh, abnormal which is something that can take a bit of time to become abnormal um, and uh, yeah, rather than have a malingering or functional neurological disorder, he had this like never before described form of like very rare nerve disorder. Did he make it into the Victorian College of the Arts? I think we got no, no, he got he got really sick. He like shortly after he started aspirating his food, he was, like was intubated in ICU. Oh Jesus! Back into the story, like all of neurology. Well, he, yeah, well, he got he got better eventually. Once we once we stopped accusing him of putting things in his eyes, you know, <laughs> um, and gave him some IVRG. Yeah, I know he's intubated, but I still think he's been sneaking mm, drops in his eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, he was a really nice kid. Um, mm. And he, he did well in the end. I think he hopefully he's back to dancing now. This is a couple of years ago. That would be a nice story if he was back to ballet dancing. I hope so. Mm. Uh, yeah. So the point of those stories were that. It is a really terrible hard. neurologist. <laughs> never send your patients to me. Um, no, the point of those stories was it's really hard to diagnose. Um, and as I said, really important, but really hard. And so that um, element of diagnostic humility, even though, to be honest, in all those cases, I was internally convinced that these people were functional. I still um, actually, because that's what you're supposed to do, I did actually present to them um, diagnostically humble. Um, and so in all, the, all of those cases, I actually didn't have any problems with the patients when they turned out to have organic disorders um, because I always told them that, you know, that's what I think and we need to do some more tests and we're never sure. Um, but it's big, big, and we did do the test, which I guess kind of saved us um, in all those cases. But it's just really important to remember that it's hard. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that applies right, take, to all forms of or every field of medicine, not just functional neurology. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not so humble that your patients have no faith in what you Yeah, do. I don't know. It could be anything, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you even have a heart? Do we know that you've got a heart? <laughs> uh, the existence of the human heart has not been confirmed. <laughs> yeah. I could say anything in this empiric world. I don't have mathematical proof for it, so yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a really good point. But um, yeah, don't be cocky, you know. It's mm. bad. 
Ah, be, be cocky a little bit. That's what I but do. Not, yeah, be a little bit cocky, but not too cocky. Not too cocky. You also don't want to be so uncertain of yourself that... Um, Patients are looking to you for leadership. Don't be, yeah, yeah. don't be not cocky, okay? Make sure you be cocky, but also don't be cocky. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should be externally cocky and not internally cocky. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's a secret to good medicine. Although if you were externally cocky in these situations, that would have landed you in hot water with the patients who later said, you told me it was nothing and I have a bleed in my frontal lobe. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, it looks true. like we, we're going to not be cocky about what you need to be in terms of cocky now. Yeah, right? exactly. Just, just, yeah, exactly right. You work it out yourself. Who knows? We don't know the answers. We're not no, that cocky. No, no, no. Rahul can't help but be cocky. That's part of my choice. nature. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. so cocky is such a demeaning messages. way to put it. Like, <laughs> I feel like, you know, being... Like, that's the cutest way we could put it. There's other words we could <laughs> True, true. Okay. What are the take-home messages from this nigh-on-an-hour-long podcast on no, functional we, neurology? It doesn't matter. No one is listening at this point. So <laughs> take-home messages are... <laughs> That uh, functional neurological disorders are very common. Up to 50% of neuropatients have them. Diagnostic humility will serve you extremely well. Um, and the most important part of the treatment is the initial consultation and how well you handle that. Mm. I yep. don't know. Did you learn anything else? Did I teach you anything? No, but that's all right. I still like you. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. We'll teach us about um, the hard sciences of cardiology. Yeah, well, I'm trying to do non-cardiology ones specifically, but Davor is specifically ignoring everything else in the world other than neurology. Someone has to balance this out here. So I'll bring you something interesting and from a weird, maybe even like pain medicine or something like that. I don't know. I'll do something strange. Pain medicine, that'd be good. That'd be cool. I should, be, maybe I should do one on pain medicine. I'd well, like it would be much more in your the, Half of neurology is functional neurology. The other half is pain medicine. There you go. Um, and then maybe some diaper selection at the end. <laughs> That's universal. <laughs> All right, Davos getting called. We better wrap this one up. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye. Bye.